0: Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King on this Palm Sunday. strikes me that one of the questions that uh, sports journalists love to ask athletes after some significant occasion is, what was on your mind? What were you thinking about? So if you watched the last Super Bowl, as I did, all the journalists, as they, uh, the Philadelphia Eagles held off the Patriots at the last, that was seemed to be a pretty a common question they ask to the defensive ends or the defensive players. What was on your mind when you were trying for that last stop? What, was, what were you thinking about, they asked the coach, is that last Hail Mary was up in the air? I guess we're kind of baffled, aren't we, by people who can operate with just incredible coolness under pressure. Say, for instance, uh, the second string quarterback that the Eagles employed as they, uh, uh, they used for their victory. How did you do that? What were you thinking about as you Uh, led your team to victory? That's a common question, isn't it? Big events, I guess big events in all sorts of uh, areas, but primarily in the sporting world, it seems we ask this question. What was on your mind? Well, as far as big events go in the life of the church, they do not get any bigger than this Sunday. This this week begins uh, the most significant week in the life of the church. One of my friends and neighbors jokingly said, but I think accurately said, you know, you're coming up to the Super Bowl of Sundays for you, aren't you? And he's right, it is. The events of, that begin on Palm Sunday and, of course, culminate in Easter are really important. Beginning on Palm Sunday, that's the day that we're celebrating today, moves quickly to Monday. On Monday, Jesus clears the temple, which was an unexpected and really an unwelcome a uh, religious reform from the events of the previous day that being today many were expecting a political reform or a military reform that Jesus would then go to the temple struck many people as unwelcome and odd monday follows followed by tuesday on tuesday one of his closest companions judas iscariot made arrangements for his betrayal thursday the last supper that he gathered with his disciples a trial, and then, of course, the events of Good Friday. These are events that are unmatched in their significance, unmatched in their importance. Wouldn't you like to know what was on his mind during that final week of his life in these events that really altered the course of human history? Jesus, what were you thinking about as the game clock of your life wound down? What were you thinking about in these final moments of your life, this final week of your life? Well, that's actually an answer, a question that we don't have to speculate about. We're told, the mind of Christ. It's a mind of, that he had certainly throughout his life, but I think it's no stretch of the exaggeration to suggest that here, these are the things that the, that great mind was thinking about during these great events. Turn with me to this letter, the letter to the Philippians, it's printed in your service leaflet. Verse 5 begins with this encouragement Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then for the next three verses, really verses 6 and 9, 6 through 9, we are told the mind of Christ. So let's consider that question. What was he thinking about as his final days approached and as these events played themselves out? So we're in the letter to the Philippians. What was on his mind? Well, first you'll note that there was something that he did not do. He was thinking about something that he would not do, that being, he would not grasp. Verse 6, who Jesus, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing that he would grasp, that he would reach for. In other words, Jesus was not like one of those heroes from, or tragic characters from classical literature like Icarus, who flies too close to the sun, or one of those characters from a Shakespeare play whose vaulting ambition gets him in all sorts of trouble. Jesus was not like that. He did not grasp. Instead, he was in a word humble. You know, that word humble comes from the Latin word humus, not hummus, what you put on your pita chips, humus as in earth. That's where the Latin root comes from. The, the word, English word comes from the Latin root, earth. In other words, and it's a great uh, juxtaposition. Instead of reaching beyond one's station, reaching beyond one's position, the humble person is grounded in reality. They have a firm grasp of who they are. Their feet are both planted firmly in the earth. They have an accurate perception of themselves. That's important because I think if there's any word that's in need of some Redemption is that word humility. Humility does not mean spineless compliance. Humility uh, doesn't mean hypocrisy, as if someone who's really good should say, I'm not really that good, and someone who's fast should say, I'm not really kind of slow, or someone who's smart should say, I'm really not that. Humility is not another another word for hypocrisy. Humility simply means that you have an accurate self-perception. You're grounded in reality. Jesus was that. He had an accurate self-perception. It's told of us, an encouragement to you and me, that we are to have a sober perception of ourselves. Another way to say the same thing. Jesus was that. He knew his position before God, his Father. And we'll soon see that his position under God was expressed through his obedience to God. So that's our first observation, just consider with me that Accurate self-perception is a really, really rare thing. Don't you think? I think most of us don't have don't do what is described here. Most of us kind of overreach. Let me tell you a good example of someone who didn't do that. Maybe it will give us a little bit better insight. Every Labor Day we have someone share a testimony about their work. Many years ago, maybe as many as five years ago, someone in the medical field spoke, and this person was a nurse. And because they were good at their job, they were given the opportunity to uh, be advanced in their their position. So instead of being a direct caregiver, they were now given the opportunity to be a manager, a leader uh, of people who were caregivers, not just a nurse, but managing and leading nurses more responsibility, more recognition. I can only imagine more compensation. Now, just think how hard that would be to turn down if that were you. In my field, if someone in the church that so were in a hierarchical church, there are bishops above me, if someone were to pull me aside and say, Glade, you know, we've been watching you. <laughs> we think you got what it takes. Now, I I just don't trust my own response because I would think, well, it's about time, right? You're appealing to my sense of my own self-worth. Yes, yes, I'll pray about it, but believe me, the answer is yes. (laughs) You see, we live in a supersized culture, right? Do you want super? Yes, I want supersized. If some is good, then more must be better, right? If medium is good, give me some more. If nursing is good, then managing nurses must be better. If pastoring is good, then being a pastor of pastors must be better, right? Well, this person turned down this opportunity, and I think as they shared their testimony, they said something to the effect of just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean that you should do it. So here's the principle. If God calls you to be a teacher, don't stoop to be a principal, right? If God calls you to be a nurse, don't stoop to be a manager. Don't... I think I've said enough on that, on that example. Bigger is not always better. Just because you can doesn't necessarily mean you should. This is true of Jesus Christ. All throughout his life, he didn't grasp especially on Palm Sunday as the crowds encouraged him to be a type of king that he was not he said no and this is a great principle for us accurate self-perception grounded self-perception that's the basis for humility incredibly important and I think incredibly rare Self-perception that acknowledges our own faults and foibles and all our own dependence upon God, absolutely, but also self-perception that acknowledges our strengths and it acknowledges our callings as well. So enough on that principle. Let's move on. If you follow the logic of this verse, we're given an umbrella statement. Here's the general principle. He did not grasp And there we're going to find two ways, two implications from that principle. I'll mention both and spend a lot of time on the second one only. So again, in the passage, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of man. Now, that's a very important verse, but that's clearly referring to Jesus' birth, his Christmas, his incarnation What happened when he was born in Bethlehem? He emptied himself and took on the form of a human being. Now, it's the next passage that I think is more timely, uh, more appropriate for this time of year, and that is in verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. And that's where I want to focus our attention. He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. Two observations. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus was not humiliated. It's a big distinction. He, was, he humbled. He did it. He was never humiliated. I just want to observe with you how much Jesus is in control throughout the entirety of, of Palm of Holy Week. You notice how much attention is given to his choreographed entrance. Go get the donkey. Go find the donkey. Go bring the donkey to me. Why? Jesus was leaving nothing to chance. He arranged this and pre-arranged this to uh, elicit the very cries that he received of Hosanna, Hosanna, because riding in on a donkey was a fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. But he did it. I've mentioned that Jesus was betrayed. You know who encouraged his betrayal? Jesus. Judas, at one point in the Last Supper, Jesus told Judas, you go and do the thing that you have decided to do. Go and do it now. Jesus was taken to a kangaroo court. And his, his, uh, the judge and jury could not, have a, could not find a conviction that stuck. So Jesus convicted himself. Jesus was then taken to Pontius Pilate. And Jesus told Pontius Pilate, you have no authority over me other than what's been given to you above, from above. Even at his death, do you know that you will never find this statement in the Bible, Jesus died? The biblical authors intentionally avoid that. They instead say something to the effect of he gave up his spirit or he gave up his ghost. The point is that death had no authority over him. He gave himself to it. His betrayer did not have authority over him. The court did not have authority over him. Pontius Pilate did not have authority over him. Not even death. He gave himself his own voluntary and deliberate choice. He humbled himself. Now I think that is not only inspiring, I think that's very instructive. And here's why. Because you have met humble people, and I have met humble people, people who remember other people's names, people who seem to be interested in the affairs of others, uh, people who are not self-congratulatory. You've met that type of person, as have I, and I am tempted to think, well, gosh, I'm, I'm just not that type of person. There are hum- humble people, and then there are other people like me. Yesterday, we were walking uh, through Del Rey, We went to that little park next to Mount Vernon Community School, and I was with my kids, and we did a A pull-up contest and uh, it was a very short contest and my youngest son Matthew at age six spent about 30 seconds on the pull-up bar and then he just said my arms don't do (laughs) pull-ups no no your arms don't do pull-ups no one's arms do pull ups not naturally no one does humility not naturally. Humility cuts against the most basic impulses in our, the entirety of our humanity. No one is concerned with anybody but themselves. That's part of the human condition. And those people who have acted in humility probably have done so due to a little bit, deliber- a little bit of deliberateness. My dean of my seminary was a gentleman named Peter Moore. He's spoken here before. I went to visit him. This is when he was in, uh, acting as dean. Outside his office was a wall of pictures of every student and a name underneath that picture. Why? So that he would know everybody's name. In other words, he was no better at knowing names than you or me. He simply humbled himself and was deliberate about learning the names of other human beings. I think it is a small consolation and an encouragement that Jesus took an active role in his own humility. And it's instructive for us because the same will likely be true for you. Humility is not natural. It's something that you have to be deliberate about, and Jesus was. He did it. He humbled himself. Final observation from this verse. He humbled himself and became obedient. Just consider with me that Jesus... The, the expression of Jesus' humility was his obedience. That's interesting, isn't it? Obedience. Obedien- obedience is not a very popular phrase. Think about it. When was the last time that you said words to this effect? I don't like it. I don't think it's the best thing to do. But I'm going to do it just because you said so. When's the last time you said something like that? I have to go back about three years, I think. Again, we're in a hierarchical church, and our bishop, by who is by no means a heavy hand, asked us to all uh, use a similar liturgy that the Anglican church was producing. I don't love it. I still want to say, and also with you instead of with your spirit. <laughs> but he asked it, and so OK. Here's my, my speculation if we have no capacity for obedience in temporal affairs, and very few of us do, then it's probably going to be difficult for us to exercise any sort of obedience in heavenly affairs. Don't you think? And Jesus was at the disposal of God. Absolutely. Now, I know there has to be some balance. I'm not recommending thoughtless compliance or mindless compliance, but I am suggesting that it's probably a good thing for you and me every once in a while to say, I don't like it, I don't agree with it, but just because you said so, I'll do it. So there we have it. What was on the mind of Christ during that final week? That great mind. That great mind that brought about these great events that changed the sh- shape of Human history. One, his feet were grounded on the earth. He had an accurate perception of himself. He did not grasp for things which were not his. He humbled himself deliberately, intentionally. He humbled himself even unto the point of death, and his humility was expressed in obedience. And I think those are all very good things for us to reflect on do you have an accurate self-perception, a self-perception grounded in reality, grounded in God's Word, grounded in your, the, 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 the truth about our fallen human nature? Yes, but also the truth of who God has called you to be and your strengths. Do you take a deliberate role in your own humility? It doesn't come natural. No more natural than your arms do pull-ups. And finally, just a little... Highlight under that word obedience. Not popular, but a good thing for all of us. That was what was on Jesus' mind. One last consideration, that was his mind. How can his mind be our mind? Saint John of Climacus lived in the 7th century and wrote this, humility is a grace in the soul with a name known only to those who have had experience of it. Humility is a grace in the soul known only to those who have had experience of it. I think that's very beautiful, and I think I know what he means. He means that humility must be first experienced before it can be known or certainly practiced. Jean Valjean from Victor Hugo's Les Miserables is a great example of that. Jean Valjean, a condemned criminal, sought refuge in a church. He was welcomed by a, a priest, and then he abused that priest, took his silver, and then fled. He was caught, returned, and the priest freed him. And the priest said this to the baffled uh, Jean Valjean and his baffled captors. Oh, Jean Valjean, you... you have the candlesticks, but you forgot the silver plates as well. And Jean Valjean was, from that point forward, a free man. And as the police leave a little baffle, the priest turns and whispers to Jean Valjean and says, never forget that you have promised to use this to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I am withdrawing you from darkness, and I give you to God. Later, Jean Valjean reckons with this unexplainable act of charity, unexplainable act of humility on the part of this priest. And this is what Victor Hugo writes. Jean Valjean's legs buckled underneath him as if overwhelmed by a great blow. He fell exhausted, his hands clenched to his hair, his face on his knees, and exclaimed, what a wretch I am. His heart swelled. He burst to tears, the first tears that he had shed in 19 years. Now here's the point. Jean Valjean's humility, marked by his confession, was preceded by his experience of the humility of the bishop before him. You and I can know what Jean Valjean knew. Jesus emptied himself. He humbled himself. He became obedient, obedient to the point of death. Yes, out of obedience to his father, but also out of his love for you. He was humbled for you so that you might be exalted. He died so that you might live. He purchased our soul from darkness into light at the cost of his own utter and complete humiliation. And he is here to meet with you. He is gentle, and he is lowly of heart. Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death, death on the cross for you. Let's pray. I pray that we would know the humble mind of Christ. I pray that we would ex- experience the humble mind of Christ so that we may finally have the humble mind of Christ. Amen.